You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Amen. Well, on the back of your handout, uh, you'll see there the reading that uh, Josh did for us this morning so well, uh, John 18, 38. Uh, and that reading really, uh, we had. Well, I, f- I felt that that was a fitting reading as a, as a tidy recap and catch up from where we were last week. It, it captures for us that Jesus is king, but not, uh, not though of a world devoid of objective truth, but he's the king of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is now here, one of truth, love and peace. Uh, last week, we looked at how the disciple or the, the disciple, or the follower of Jesus lives in this world here and now that actively seeks to live out these kingdom values. Um, I had a beautiful conversation with Evelyn this morning. She's sick. She's not here. Um, but she's like, Dad, what do you mean the kingdom of God is now? What do you mean that like Jesus is king? Like, it's not like that now. And I was just like, you're right, Evelyn. It's not like that in everything that we see around us. But Jesus has died. He's risen again to new life. He's given us his Holy Spirit and his kingdom is, it starts from within his people to be lived out. And in time, we will see it restored and renewed in the new world that we look forward to that he will bring in. And so uh, disciples, Christians, uh, we have a confidence in Christ, both in his power to liberate us from death, but also to come now, here and now, to guide us in a life, in this life now, a kingdom of God way. And last week, we thought about how the prayer, thy kingdom come, can be a very helpful and personal reminder and corporate declaration of our kingdom life with Jesus. Thy kingdom come. They are words uh, that recalibrate our minds and remind us of our elect exile expectation so that we can shape our lives around God's purposes for us to be people who are actively partnering with him in the final finishing touches for God's plan for this world. Go therefore and make disciples. We thought about, we, we wanted to be reminded of our identity as kingdom people so that, we are, so that we can be reminded that we are released from being too attached to our immediate culture and context. You see, we don't need to control this world We don't need to victimise this world. We don't need to abuse this world. We don't need to worship this world. We don't need to give in to this world or be worried about it or withdraw from it. We simply are called to live in it as Jesus did. And so we started this series and we'll continue on in this series with the lens and with the frame and with us pointing to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Life now in the kingdom of God through the finished work of Jesus. And I want us to keep continuing to this, keep continuing to this, returning to this foundation, this Jesus way, Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus who through his life, death, and resurrection simultaneously brought us into the kingdom of God and also provides for us the concrete example of true love for wise living in a society of subjective, shallow, and sandy standards. Last week was an important foundation to today's topic, freedom of religion. 
I wonder what you think when you hear freedom of religion. Maybe you hear in your mind the latest soundbite from the media speaking about the most recent government policies to limit the way people can live with faith. Maybe you think about your kids at school, what they're going to be exposed to in a, in a society where the historic Christian faith is, is pushed aside and pushed out of the classroom and then also what may be pushed in. Or maybe you think of your work situation. Maybe there's a concern that you currently have about your employer's early adoption or even non-adoption of a particular expression of freedom of religion. Or maybe you think of Christians. Maybe you roll your eyes at those seemingly crazy, over-the-top, Facebook-posting, Instagram-warring idealists. Or perhaps you're frustrated with those seemingly passive, non-activist believers that really they could be making a difference. I wonder what you think when you hear freedom of religion. Like what questions do you ask? Because whatever you think of this topic, there's always a follow-on question, isn't there? Maybe it's, what do I do? What do I do in the face of these new developments in my work, in my schools, at my church, in my community? What do I do? Maybe it's, how bad will this get? Maybe you're feeling a pressure. Maybe you're wondering, where is this going? Or maybe a question quite simply is, will I be okay? Will this eventually mean I lose my job? What about my kids at school? What about my own and my family's emotional and spiritual health and future before them? What about this trust that even I say that I have in Jesus? What am I going to do? Will I be okay when there's actually pressure put on that? Will I be able to stand the test? So many of us take this emotional journey when we hear freedom of religion and think about it. And then what do we do? Some of us, we might be paralyzed by worry. We might be promoted to war. Or perhaps most of us, we sit down, pick up phone, switch on TV and try to forget about it all. Well, wherever you are in this spectrum of experience and emotion today, my goal as a Christian pastor today is to offer this help and this hope. I want us today to see how the way of Jesus gives clarity and gives confidence to live in the midst of this complex circumstance. So freedom of religion, what do you think? Well, as defined by the Australian Government Attorney General's Department, that's the most profound, smartest thing I'll say today. Freedom of religion is, and this is ripped straight off their website, freedom of religion is that all persons have the right to think freely and to, and to entertain ideas and hold positions based on conscientious or religious or other beliefs subject to certain limitations. Persons also have the right to demonstrate or manifest religious or other beliefs by way of worship, observance, practice or teaching. What do you think of that definition? You know, sounds good until you get to that bit that says subject to certain limitations. What do you mean by subject to certain limitations? Well, they pad out their definition. You scroll down, continue. The freedom 
to manifest religion or beliefs may be limited as prescribed by law when necessary to protect public safety, order, health or morals on the fundamental rights and freedom of others. Did you notice that last bit? Limitations based on morals. Now I want to know, morals is defined by who? We thought about last week the objective and subjective moral standard and the mess that we're in, in the middle of this world. What about the subjective standards of morals that are going to limit freedom of religion? I mean, if it's coming from God, you know, an objective truth, Christ who laid down his life for other people, love them as I have loved you, like I think we're sweet. But, uh, you know, implant this definition from the Australian Government Attorney General's Department, bless them, uh, implant into this time and day and age where we are with our subjective morality, playing it out, playing it itself out to its end, I think this means that freedom of religion potentially just could mean anything. And as we know, we've all felt this. Like in the immediate, the media's attempt for clicks and ratings and cash grabs, like we all feel these unspoken tensions. Like, what do they mean by freedom? Like, what do you mean by freedom? Like, freedom for who? Freedom from what? Freedom to do what? Like, what do you mean by freedom? And religion, what do you mean by religion? Is that a particular way of living? Is that a particular religion? Is that an organised religion? Is that an institutionalised religion? Or is that just the Christian religion? And what do you mean by of? Now, of's okay. We can, we can be okay with of. We like of. Prepositional words are awesome. You know, they're, they're, they're your best friends in theology. But what do you mean by freedom? What do you mean by religion? Unfortunately, in a highly volatile world, we can feel like we have a very flimsy definition, which means we often experience this scourge of inconsistent inconsistency. Freedom of religion. But hey, here's some good news, well-defined or not. If you go back to even the very first followers of Jesus, even at the beginning of the Christian way, you will find that they too were in a context of, volat of volatility and unease. They too. They too were feeling the tension. Jesus himself was in the middle of this tension. And it's with this historical record of the biblical text and with the government of that day, we have got some principles before us to explore. And we've also got Jesus' life to look to, which means we've got some questions to consider. Two questions we're going to look at today. How does a disciple engage with government? How does a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ engage with government? And the secondly, how does a disciple of Jesus Christ engage with those in the world under the same government? Engage with the government and engage with those around within that government as well. First question, how does a disciple of Jesus Christ engage with government? First, let us recognise this. Government is a good thing. Government's a good thing. Government is in many ways, an outworking of the character of God, a God who is a God of order and design. You see, in principle, government will bring the good things of God. 
Historically, we see that government has been influential in bringing these qualities, order. See, otherwise, where, there's no, where there is no order, there is chaos. The only people that thrive in chaos are those that exploit and prey on the weak. Government can bring order. Government can bring justice. It's a system of fairness for all that are in the, within the realm of government. Government can also bring virtue. History shows us that the strong will exploit the weak. Government will bring a system of accountability and means that there's some consistency to the way people conduct themselves behind closed doors. Government can also bring prosperity, a way and a system for people to flourish. And government can also bring safety, can put in place systems of defence and even responses to attack. We live in a world created by a God who is a God of order and of design. And it's a world where there does exist from him an objective standard of good, bad, right and wrong. And there's some encouragement in this because it means that even under the worst type of government, there's at some times we'll still hit these standards even without trying. You know that old adage, a broken clock is right at least twice a day. Government is a good thing. You see, if you look at the story of the Bible, actually the, the, the Bible even starts with government, doesn't it? God gives delegated authority to Adam and Eve to have dominion over all things. And God as creator and ruler and king of all, he oversees the government that, ex- that uh, it forms throughout the story of the Bible. And he empowers kings and he gives slices of authority and he even directs the king's hearts in their government, doesn't he? Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. We only have to cast our mind back to a few weeks ago, thinking about the government that was over God's people with Ezra and Nehemiah and the influence that was in those spaces and the influence that God had on those kings. And lastly, government is in the Bible in that the Christian hope is one that looks forward to a government is where Jesus is on the throne, where there is Jesus's government. Isaiah 9, 6, it says, talking of the birth of Christ, to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The government of Jesus is the government we all long for. He's the one we'll never want to vote out. He's the one that we'll, we'll, we'll thrive in and have safety with and we'll flourish under. Government is a good thing. But as we know, not all government is good. So how does a disciple of Jesus engage with questionable government? One that causes concern for jobs, kids, even lifestyle. Well, as disciples of Jesus, we need to look to Jesus. What is the way of Jesus in response to government? Now, it goes without saying, a Roman, uh, a sermon that is talking about engaging with government is not complete uh, without a mention of Jesus and the Roman tax. It happened like this. If you don't know the story, uh, Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders of the day. Uh, I think this one is on the back of your handout, uh, hopefully. Mark 12, these religious leaders come before Jesus and they want to trap him. They say to him, 
Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Okay, denarius is a little coin, one day's wage. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. Now, it would seem in this situation uh, that they're trying to back Jesus into a corner. They're giving him two conflicting options. There is give to Caesar. So if they give the coin to Caesar, it looks as if Jesus, if he says support the tax, it's like you are supporting the questionable Roman occupation. These soldiers and these governors that are restricting the freedom of religion and oppression of God's people. See, if Jesus is like, yeah, sure, give, give the money to Caesar, it will make Jesus look as if he's all talk and he's not worth following. He's kind of just like, yeah, whatever, just like give in to the law of the land. Sorry, and then there's that. But then if, if Jesus says, don't give to Caesar, Jesus is going to be treated like another revolutionary of the time. There's already been plenty of religious nuts at this point in history. And he's just thrown in prison and he'll be thrown down by the Roman rule of the day. Jesus has got like two seemingly bad options. How does Jesus reply? And they brought a denarius to him and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Showing the coin. Whose face is stamped on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at it. Appropriate response. Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus models to his disciples, he models to us, a respectful, gentle, honourable posture towards government, doesn't he? Jesus is the foundation of what Paul writes to the church in Rome. A church that almost certainly certainly was on the verge or even in the midst of Christian persecution. He writes, Paul writes, Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, a delegated authority. And those that exist have been instituted by God. God's let them be there. Pay to verse verse 7, I recommend just read this whole chapter, but we don't have time. Pay to all that are owed, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owed. I read that, I mean, I think of my time in the army. There was a lot of, I mean, that I was an OR and another rank and there was officers and there was officers that would get around with the little, you know, they were officers, right? They'd have rank and you'd have to salute them. And there were some officers that were jerks. And you... But we would often say to ourselves, salute the rank, don't salute the person. And that's how we felt better about saluting jerks. But anyway, that's what Jesus is saying. He's just like, respect to who? Respect. Like they have a holder position. They've got some rank, so we honour the rank. Okay, you don't. Sorry, that wasn't in my notes. You have that for free. Jesus is the foundation of what Peter also writes to the churches in the dispersion. Church under, church in, churches, under the, were under, churches that were under the oppression of Emperor Domitian who was violently making the claim that he was divine. Okay, like, like you know your politicians are screwed up and like, yeah, I'm God. <laughs> I'm not sure about this guy's policies. Anyway, but Peter writes to these, these churches, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16, live as those people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God, honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. A disciple of Jesus will submit and engage even with questionable governments in so much as they can partner in the furthering or maintaining of the way that that government aligns with God's characteristics of goodness, order, justice, virtue, prosperity and safety. And we should do so gladly. But Jesus doesn't stop with whose image is on the coin. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, does he? He doesn't stop there. Jesus also says this, give to God what is God's. And this, my friends, is amazing. This is life-giving. This is our gospel moment in our thinking through this issue. You see, Jesus is like, cool, you've got your man-made coin to help keep the Roman Empire and economy working. Don't stress about the coin. Give that back to Caesar. Good. All right. Great. Now, let's think about this. What is it in creation that God has made that has his image on it? Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. Male and female, God, God, male and female, he created them. You see, Caesar's tax was Caesar calling back to himself what was his, for his use and for the furthering of his empire. Now, you are made in the image of God. You have a heart, you have a soul, you have a mind and a body. And Jesus says to this world, you are stamped with God's image. You are not your own. You reflect him. You are God's. And the Bible teaches and the invitation of Jesus is repent for the kingdom of God is here. That is the life-giving, and this is the life-giving invitation to give God your allegiance, to give him your priorities, to give him your body, to give him your sexuality, to give him your finances, to give him your vocation, to give him your entertainment, to give him your life. And as you give him your life, your life is going to be and will be released into the freedom and into the purposes of its maker. And this is amazing. You see, a lot of time we hang around with this give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. And we think how clever it is that Jesus would say something like that. But we forget and we often miss the beauty of this statement. Give to God what is God as this wonderful invitation of Jesus of you can come home. You know that feeling of just like you're, you are, you're at the end of yourself. You don't know. You, you don't know how you feel about this world. You don't know how you feel about yourself. And then you can just like come home 
and put your feet up in a place of just like acceptance and rest and just warmth and love. That is what Jesus is saying. He's like, give to God what is God's. Come back to your maker. Come back to your father. It's a responding to the good news of the gospel and it changes everything. Changes the way you see the world. Changes the way you see yourself. Changes the way you understand God sees you. You are imprinted with the image of God. And Jesus says, give to God what is God's. Have you? Have you given to God what is God's? If not, if not, please hear this. Giving to God what is God's, it's, it's, not, like, it's not like the giving of the Roman tax that Jesus puts this next to. It's not a forced token percentage to, to appease the local government and to keep things working. Not at all, no. Giving to God what is God is a response of love, isn't it? We love him because why? He first loved us. Giving to God is an act of trust. Yeah, I'm home with my father and my maker. I'm gonna be building my house on the rock. Life with God. Giving your life to God is saying, God, you are power. You are king. And I release everything I am back to you. And as I do, I am saying that, God, I believe that you will look after me no matter what, because I'm back in the wallet that I'm meant to be. And let me tell you, God has a very secure wallet. And you're inside it. You are safe with God. Whose image is on you? God's. You are made in the image of God. And look at what Jesus does. The invitation is so unique, it is so beautiful, it is so wonderful that he even buys us back so that we can be with God, bought back, redeemed by the blood of Christ through the death on the cross. And the result of this buying back, the result of this redemption, the result of this adoption is that you are now in God's strong, safe hands. We can be sure, you can be sure that no matter what, God will look after you. That no matter what the state of the state, because of freedom of religion, you'll be fine. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Oh, Louis, that giving back, that submission and commitment to God, that's, that's still pretty hard. I think that a lot. It's hard. But it gets better. But you're also right, it's hard. But it's great that you see that it's hard because Jesus says you must count the cost of following him. The Christian life, it is a daily life of repentance. It's a daily rethinking of your life. It's not just a once off, oh yeah, check, you know, sign up my fire insurance, I'll be right at the end of the age and nothing changes. Following Jesus is an everyday act of intentional discipleship. And yes, we should feel really weak as we seek to do that because we are. But if I can help you see the power of Christ for it, Jesus is our great high priest and is the one who calls us back in to be able to come back to God. He's also the one that says, look, I've been there before and I've seen this before. And in all the places that you're going to find it hard to give back to God what is his, in all the places of your heart and of your life and of your mind and of your priorities, you're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how I can give this back to God in this situation. Jesus has already been there. 
tempted in every way as we have been. And you know what? Jesus has been there. He's done that, conquered that, got the T-shirt, and now he wants to give you the T-shirt. He wants to help you and give you what you need to also walk wisely in submission to giving yourself all back to God. It's in Jesus that we can every day be growing as a disciple of Jesus. It's in Jesus that we'll find liberty, rest, freedom, and God's love. In our own strength, we'll never be able to give back to God what is God. But in Christ, from the motivating love of the gospel and by the power of his Holy Spirit at work within us, we can. You can. Have you given yourself fully back into the safe hands of God? Do you want to? Today can be that day. Today you can make a fresh start in a new life with God or perhaps maybe it's a refresh of what you once started and have set aside. And if that is you today, I'd love to chat. So in giving back to God what is God, Jesus wants you and I to see that we really can be released from, ever, from whatever freedom of religion pressures may come. Jesus is alive. A new way is here. The end is certain. You will be fine. But we still in, even in this confidence, are called to live with wisdom, aren't we? We are still called to live out our kingdom identity and 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 the purposes that God has prepared for us. So how does a disciple of Jesus engage with a government that is questionable, that is not good? What about the times, Louis, what about the times when when there's things asked of us that we shouldn't give to Caesar? What are those times? We're now talking about civil disobedience. And you're like, ooh, civil disobedience. This is, this is the meaty part of the sermon that I came for today. Oh, this is what I, hey, this is why I clicked on the link. Oh, you should be here. When is civil disobedience necessary? And what does civil disobedience look like? All right. When is civil, civil disobedience necessary? There's probably less reasons than you probably would think. The primary reason is, I think, from when there is an enforced, punishable activity that puts the heart of a disciple into a conscious state of dishonouring God. We have some New Testament examples of when the first followers of Jesus considered civil disobedience necessary. One is a refusal to confess Jesus as God. That was when the government was saying death for saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. That was a coerce, a seeking to coerce them to basically play for the other team. A dishonouring of God. The other example we have is, a ref- so that, that's, that's 1 Peter, a refusal to speak openly about God. So we see this in the book of Acts. Paul and Silas, they were told to be silent for just talking about Jesus and they were thrown in prison. You know, don't talk about Jesus, shut up. That's the agenda of the other team. That's a dishonouring God when they're just like, oh, In their hearts, as a dishonouring of God, they continued in their action. They didn't want to play for the other team. And the other one is perhaps uh, being complicit in plans that are obviously not godly. 
Now, this is from the very first followers of Jesus, the wise men. In there, you see what I did there? Yeah. And that was in their involvement in the agenda to murder little baby Jesus, mandated by obviously a wrong motive. Murder. That's obviously the other team. Civil disobedience is necessary when there is an agenda, when there is an enforced punishable activity that puts the heart of a disciple into a conscious state of dishonouring God. So then what does civil civil disobedience look like? What does it look like? And this is the important part. I think no one has phrased this better than Pastor John Tyson. Civil disobedience is a new, I'm quoting him now, civil disobedience is a nuanced, thoughtful thing. It's not two middle fingers to the man, throwing Molotov cocktails and burning things down. It's a thoughtful, theologically informed willingness to suffer the punishment for the disobedience based in humility and Christ's likeness and conviction. He says, I love the activist spirit of the current generation, but I don't like the spirit with which they are being active. So much of it is based on hatred, anger and self-righteousness. This should not be the way. Civil disobedience has to be thoughtful, theologically informed, with a willingness to suffer in humility like Jesus. You notice those New Testament examples we talked about before? They were every time thoughtful. They weren't brash, tribal, whipped up into a frenzy or an emotional rage-based actions. They were theologically informed. There was a consideration with the whole council of God, where possible, discussed within the community of God, the church. And it wasn't based on a picking and choosing and skewing of Bible verses to suit a personal agenda. And there was a willingness in all of those situations to suffer in humility and to take on the consequence for their actions. Each person's actions, they weren't primarily to make a political statement. They weren't doing this to get noticed online. They weren't out there with a hidden agenda. Their motive was, I am going to obey God and I'll let him take care of the rest. Their attitudes were that of, I'm not going to let my part, to let this part of myself that belongs to God go to another with this newly enforced law that is being oppressed, being forced upon me. I'm not going to let this part of myself that belongs to God go to another. And I'm going to let God take care of whatever the circumstances is on circumstances are on the other side. Now, worth a comment here. I don't think this is us, many of us, but still needs to be said. I think too many Christians today glamorize civil disobedience or when they think they're getting close to it. There's too many Christians that want to create a bandwagon for other Christians to get on so that they can poke their tongue out of the world just to show how tough or creation, courageous or full of truth they are. And yes, seeking first the kingdom of God 
And giving to God what is God will mean a mental toughness and it will mean great courage and it will mean standing up for the truth. But civil disobedience is not a vehicle for you to post all over social media as a form of self-righteousness and piety. It's not a reason to blog or to or a petition that you can align yourself with so that you can then stand in condemnations of, of over others that aren't standing with you. Have you heard of this prayer in scripture? Jesus tells the parable of two that go to pray and there is the, the religious one that goes to pray and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners or unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector. That person was not exalted by God that day. God exalted the one who prayed like this. God be merciful to me, a sinner. If civil disobedience is ever on the cards for you, if you're considering it, the circumstances that you're in, make sure you check your Bible, check in with your church family, check your hearts and prayerfully consider if there be any impure motive to what you might be considering. And that's really important because in civil disobedience, you are saying that I'm, you are standing with God in this thing and you could be representing him so wrong. Civil disobedience should be thoughtful, theologically informed with a willingness to suffer in humility like Jesus. Now, for us as a church, for us as a church family here on the Surf Coast 2022, if in God's grace he continues to see us through in years and hopefully decades to come, if one day we as a church find ourselves in a position where there is an enforceable, punishable activity that puts us as disciples into a conscious state of dishonouring God, I hope that we would respond in a way that is thoughtful, theologically informed and with a willingness to suffer in humility like Jesus. And I would hope that as we do, we would show the world around us the Holy Spirit's work within us. I would hope that we would engage and accept whatever the consequences may be with a spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not flying off the handle. I would hope that our accusers might see us as a people who are loving, patient, kind. Not a people who are envious or boastful. Not a people who are arrogant and rude. Not a people who are insisting on their own way. Not a people who are irritable or resentful. Not a people who rejoice at wrongdoing, but who are rejoicing with the truth. I hope that we would be that sort of people. So I would encourage you to even now, even now, begin practicing these qualities. It's in these times of peace that we need to equip ourselves for times of persecution, strengthening the bonds we have with God and with one another. 
leaning into active, intentional discipleship, reading the Bible and praying over it with others while we can, making the best use of this time while we can. As we would say in our training in the army, train hard, fight easy. Now, here's some good news. Us in the West, Australia, great down under. Here's the good news. We, we, we don't have any persecution. Like, we, we don't have persecution. Like, that was one of the awkward things about preaching through 1 Peter, these churches that are under great persecution, these passages on persecution. It's just like, this feels so redundant. We're not persecuted. We're meeting in a... How public can you get, really? I mean, the, I mean, the, the closest we, we would just sit all in salty dog and do this, but that would just be rude, so we're not going to do that. Like, we're pretty far away from needing to engage in any civil disobedience, aren't we? But for necessary perspective's sake, let me tell you what persecution really looks like. I would encourage you this week to look up the website called Open Doors. It's a ministry that, uh, that every year put up what's called a world watch list. Uh, they do reconnaissance around the world to discover the 50 most dangerous places to be a Christian in the world. Currently number one, which this year knocked off the long reigning North Korea, number one, and this is even after North Korea got worse, by the way, number one on the most dangerous places to be a Christian in the world in 2022, Afghanistan. Open Doors writes, It is impossible to live openly as a Christian in Afghanistan. Leaving Islam is considered shameful and believers, believers may be disowned or killed by their families or clan. The Taliban take over and increased the persecution of Christians, and many were first forced to flee. Sayyid and Fatima are two secret believers, it's all come from their website, who chose, chose to stay in Afghanistan after the Taliban took control in August. The same night of the takeover, they gave birth to a baby girl. Now Taliban soldiers go from house to house looking for Christians. A list has been circulating with their names on it. Fatima told us that this it is not an option, that, that it's not an option to follow Jesus in public. But, but the pain of following Jesus is nothing new. As their families have practiced their Christian faith in the shadows now for more than 40 years. Together, Fatima and Sayyid, they plan to stay, help feed the hungry, clothe people, and share the gospel. They write, I don't know where to begin, her husband Sayyid said, but I will begin by encouraging my wife. There is hope for our daughter. It will not be easy, but we do this because we believe Jesus is alive. Faith in Afghanistan is so dangerous. It's hidden from spouses. It's hidden from children. It's hidden from everyone. Could you imagine raising your child just not telling them about the goodness of Christ until you know that they have just the emotional intelligence to then be able to keep it a secret. 
Afghanistan sounds like a place you wouldn't want to hang around in, does it? Yet there are people like Saeed and Fatima that stay behind and do what? Feed the hungry, clothe people and share the gospel. And they say it will not be easy, but we do this because we, we believe Jesus is alive. So to us, postcode 3228, we are really blessed to live where we do. And we shouldn't take it for granted. Perhaps this week in your gospel community, you can have a look at that world watch list and pray for those countries under real persecution. Places where our view of freedom of religion gets some real respect perspective. Got to say, that's been the hardest part of preparing this sermon, reading through that world watch list, just having your heart break for your brothers and sisters around the world and then just looking at what we have. We need that perspective. We need, we really do. It's a perspective that gives us two amazing practical gifts, the gift of comfort in Christ and the gift of challenge from Christ comfort and challenge. What comfort is there? No matter how bad things get, we'll be fine. God is alive. Jesus is alive. God is with you. In the face of whatever fear you may have about freedom of religion for you or your family or your friends, like Saeed and Fatima, you can always cling to the gospel of hope. How amazing is Jesus? Like, how amazing is Jesus? Like, look at his light shine in even the most darkest of places and he still brings hope. How amazing is Jesus? There's comfort. There's also challenge with this perspective, isn't there? There's challenge. Challenge to be thankful and to be useful with what you have. Be thankful. Like, do you realise that right now we are riding on the back of prayers of peace that people have made for us decades ago? Be thankful. Like, do you ever, is it ever on your radar to realize that what we are doing right now is an incredible gift from our Lord God? And I would challenge us in our thankfulness to also be useful. I think that perspective challenges us to be useful. Like, do you know that you can be a Christian and still influence our government today? I hope that you have noticed that I haven't said, don't seek to engage. In, in the political sphere. Some of the most significant shifts in human history have come from Christians making the best use of the time that they have in the cultural moment that they're in for the benefit of people. Things like women's rights, hospitals, schools, adoption centres, the abolition of slavery, all come from Christians being active in government when they could. God, has God implanted a particular passion in your heart and in your soul to make change? You really can be useful. So use the channels still available to you in your time and in the culture of freedom you have. Look to Jesus and go for it. And there's a second to be useful. There's a second to be useful. And this comes on the back of what I think is one of the worst feelings. You don't know what you've got until it's gone. And right now, it's not illegal to have a public church service or prayer nights with others to learn and to love and to trust in Jesus. I would encourage us, I would encourage myself to make the best use of these opportunities that we have right now for ourselves and for others. 
Sayyid and Fatima, they are sharing the gospel because Jesus is alive. What's getting in our way? So we've considered how does a disciple engage with government? They do so by looking at the person and work of Jesus, making our primary service to God, keeping everything in perspective. And so we're going to land this plane with three brief principles. We thought about how we react with, interact with the laws of the land. Let's think about how we can interact our personal conduct towards others who also live in this land? How does interaction with our colleagues compare to with our interaction with Caesar? Come to question time, we're going to keep working some of these things out, I'm sure. These are principles, They'll be, they're broad, there's only three, and we're going to be thinking of more key principles in the week to come. But I wanted to give you something today, one page. Okay. First principle, pray. Pray for the people that don't get you. Because, hey, look, we're not ultimately the judge of this world. So we don't need to criticize this world. In the middle of Jesus' crucifixion, he prayed. Do you know what he prayed? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, in the midst of getting murdered, hanging on the cross, he did not seek to try and justify himself. He's not on the cross trying to explain how what he's doing is right and true and loving. He's just praying for his oppressors. Now, that's not what we instinctively do, is it? Like default position, justify ourselves. I have a conviction and I have a pressure coming from this angle. I've got to justify myself while I'm doing this thing right away. When we're going to die, we often will seek to die on a hill for our own sense of self-righteousness, won't we? Jesus dies to give others his righteousness. Learn to pray for the people that don't get you. I bet your heart might even be changed to practically love them more and privately criticise them less. Principle two, learn to love the long game. Learn to love incompleteness and slowness. See, Jesus rises from the dead. And then what does he do? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't go for a top-down reset of power and oppression. He doesn't go to the Roman Colosseum and to tear down the powers that have been oppressing God's people in a blaze of glory. Like he will do that. Like I look forward to that day. But Jesus' game plan upon his return, upon his resurrection, it wasn't top-down a reset of oppressive, cohesive power. It was bottom-up revolution of love, discipleship, and peace. And that's slow. People are drawn to the way of Jesus because of his compassion, not because of coercion. And compassion so often is the slow, gentle, relational approach. Think about your own Jesus life. Think about the way Jesus one you. I'm going to bet that most of us weren't one to Christ and have been transformed to be like him by this big, powerful 10-minute TED Talk. It was the slow burn of incremental moments of connection and friendship that revolved around Jesus. It was the slow digestion of the Bible and a series of small, 
personal experiences that have over time built a deeper trust in God. This seems to be the main way of Jesus with his disciples as well, isn't it? You know, three-year intensive, you know, over time. Seems to be the common way of Jesus today. It wasn't, Jesus wasn't there like an avalanche of truth. It was this incremental, relational quality time, you know, a walk, parable, a meal, a walk, miracle. Sorry, I had to put that one in there. A meal, story, slow, incremental over time. You see, not every battle needs to be won there and then. Not every battle needs to be won in the moment. Learn to love the long game in how you relate with others in this world. And also, don't think that the miracles still don't exist. Learn to love the long game. And principle three, the opportunity for most influence is likely after the incident of most awkwardness. Our opportunities for most influence are usually after the incidences of most awkwardness. Think about this. Jesus allowed himself to be crushed, crucified on a Roman cross so that he got the opportunity to rise again. Sometimes in God's economy, we need to be able to take the hit to better demonstrate and engage in a more significant way like forgiveness or love or mercy or compassion or kindness. We play the long game and then we look for these divine appointments. And sometimes they are forced upon us and sometimes they're because of our own silly fault. Maybe we create these moments ourselves unintentionally. You know, we lash out in anger or we're caught out in being dishonest. Do you know what's a powerful thing in this world? To go back and to apologize and to ask for forgiveness and to seek to rebuild a relationship. Wow, that's what Kingdom of God people do. People don't know what you care, no, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And convincing people that you care about them is most, most powerfully shown in the moments you probably want to withdraw. The opportunity for most influence is likely after the incident of most awkwardness. Three principles. You can expect more principles of loving this world in the weeks to come. But we've covered a lot today. Thank you for coming along for this ride. Allow me to close with a reading from God's Word I think a fitting summary for, I th for us as Christians in our attitude for life now in God's kingdom towards one another. Romans 12, 1 to 3. I appear to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, good, acceptable, and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let me pray.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.